it's Filmstock. Today we're going to talk about the new Edward Norton's <laughs> film, Motherless Brooklyn, and uh, the general genre of noir and neo-noir. Yeah, but uh, hey, Aileen, how you been? I've been, again, in a, in a battle, in a raging battle with the elements because we hit, had our first big snow way early in western New York. And so we were buried for a while and my car battery died and snow shoveling nearly gave me a heart attack. And I'm, I'm having all the new resident in western New York experiences. So, so oh, I I'm sound a little bitter. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it That's sounds why. a bit like uh, some kind of Cohen, Cohen Brothers. It is kind of. It really, the, the life of the snow of snow culture is not a pretty one. <laughs> and I'm just out of training. You know, all those years in California have made me a total wimp. So I have to wear many layers and, you know, I'm just not accustomed. I keep forgetting things you desperately need and then going, oh, wait, we, we have to have that. So yeah, it's, it's that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> Very rusty. Yeah, well, it's su super cold in New York too. And yeah. but no, no snow and it's just hard to walk. I had to book this <laughs> to kind of funny story. I have to book um, as a place. All I had to use as Airbnb because it was still in Russia when I was like booking. Mm -hmm. So I some way, you know how it's always, <laughs> you do it blindly. So I booked Airbnb in like Crown Heights. Right. You, know, you know, in New York, it's like way deep into Brooklyn. And uh, usually the pictures and everything that people say about a place much better <laughs> than eventually the place is. I don't know why. Everyone is kind of like a liar, I think, on Airbnb, the way they like <laughs> right. reviews. I don't know. I don't know what's it about. It's like kind of mutual thing. I think you'll say, oh, what a great guest. And then like, oh, what an amazing place. Oh, I definitely <laughs> have had that experience. <laughs> I definitely did that once. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But and I think I've kind of done it. So I'm not even judging, but that's like, you always forget. You're like, oh, that's, a, you have to kind of, <laughs> you have yeah. to, uh, I don't know. That's fully believable. But yeah, anyway, it's not too bad, but we ended up in this like um, ground floor apartment of a mm -hmm. uh, really old kind of dilapidated brownstone mm -hmm. basically in a kind of ghetto next to next to the project wow mm -hmm. and uh yeah and it's i mean it's interesting I, I find it like an interesting experience especially since i've never seen like the lights so bright they they make this um like lamps uh, around the streets they're like brighter than anything i've seen oh my god they turn them on and you know <laughs> And right next to the project, in the end of the street, they put even, not the lamps, but I think it, it says like N NYPD puts this huge, like extra lights. Almost I, like so I was if, about to say, of course, it's because they want to be able to see, <laughs> see to yeah. catch the criminals and malefactors is why. Oh my God. And I'm thinking, I'm not even, it's nothing scary here, but I'm thinking, well, you, you're like, you're making, crim you're making mm. them into criminals. What the hell? This mm -hmm. crazy project projector lights is it for some kind of football game and yeah, it doesn't, doesn't feel appropriate at all. Yeah, I have the opposite experience. I'm out, you know, out in little towns out here and, and just, mm -hmm. just suddenly seems like, will seem like there's no street lights at all. Like they could, I don't know how they find anything. It's like my sense of smell out here. You get far out on these country roads and you're like, there's no light. There's just no light at all. <laughs> wow. Because I guess if, if there is like zero <laughs> crime in your area, I, I mean, guess like it's the opposite. to look at. <laughs> exactly. So when you get that far out, you know, who wants to go out there anyway, even to steal something? Thing, so yeah but i do have to say but it's a funny logic to put lights only where the potential crime could happen what right. about just like being right. able to, to walk and see where you're walking just, this is kind of ridiculous yeah logic yeah very challenging well this is oh. all them thematically good for a discussion of film noir actually because film noir is all about a rotten you know rotten corrupt 
world that's all it's all done with a kind of malignancy <laughs> behind it and you're trying to discover how how deep does the malignancy go yeah. you know is it all the way to the top you know whatever that is of the power structure is it beyond that is it cosmic all that kind of thing <laughs> what's the cause of this malevolence in the world is it the sort of um, uh, the origins of the noir genre this kind of this sort of like thinking do do you know where well it comes where it out of emerging mm -hmm. yeah it comes out of several kind of dark and critical genres and forms it's a it's a great it's a great if you call it a genre or whatever i call it a genre it's a great genre for its richness of borrowing so like german expressionism um um, the, the the which was a great 1920s art form and way of kind of representing the world gone mad, um, and it is specialized in this very intense, uh, dramatic, low key lighting and crazy um, production designs with like violent you know shadow um, play sometimes painted in, if it was cabinet of Dr. Caligari right on the right on the sets. Um, so you've got that kind of worldview, and we inherited all these German filmmakers from the um, rise of the Nazis. So we got a ton of mm -hmm. great talent who came right out of the German expressionist. So, um, sorry world. to interrupt, but like since you mentioned uh, the camera of Dr. Caligari, yeah. I actually forgot it. Just literally like three days ago, they were playing it at uh, MoMA, the Museum oh, really? of Modern yeah. Art here. Yeah, yeah, and I like managed to catch it, and I've never I've seen it only like parts of it, you know, on a, on like uh -huh. laptop, and seen it on a big screen is actually still I think holds oh, holds I think up so. pretty yeah. pretty well as as a as a somewhat like comedic but horror right it's considered the first horror film or, right, or, or at least it's one of the at least one, one of the uh, yeah, instigating films but it's also mm -hmm. very much a kind of yeah kind of the beginning of a kind of point of a view that can, you can see very directly inherited i mean we literally get people like fritz lang and mm -hmm. you know billy wilder and the siadmek brothers and and other people right out of the german film industry but yeah caligari starts the whole thing in film caligarism yeah. it, they called it because it was such Caligaris. a phenomena in film and it was all about like is there an evil mastermind dr caligari running the whole world or is that all in the mind of a madman and you know that whole whether it's interior you know the interior life that's gone you know sick and mad or is it the the nature of the exterior world and all that kind of confusion that's going to be big in film noir so there's that you know there's the mm -hmm. influence of um gangster films um of the, you know the 30s uh social problem films of the 30s are are a big influence super critical of america if you're talking about american film industry anyway super critical of american society in the early years of the, of the depression so like i was a fugitive from a chain gang um that kind of thing um gritty realistic um demonstrations of how what the impoverished are treated how veterans are given nothing and are allowed to basically starve in the streets how you know crime and its roots all that kind of stuff was being dealt with in the in these early 30s films before um before censors the censorship code really slammed down in 34 and you couldn't be as critical of say the government or quote unquote society as you had been but that's a, an instigator french um poetic realism of the 30s was big if you watch things like oh daybreak or port of shadows or algiers you'll see these very very angry um critical but also romantic 
films do all about fadedness and doom. Usually, there's an wait, end. but the the censorship you're talking about is was actually like uh, some kind of law, like almost like a censorship that got passed in Hollywood. You mean? Yeah, 1934 mm-hmm. is the big year of the enforcement of the so-called production code of censorship, mm-hmm. which that had been being flirted with all the way since the 20s. Partly because there were so many scandals coming out of Hollywood, that religious groups were getting together in protest at the sensational content of films, and they finally bring down the hammer in 1934 and enforce it. And it was a very expansive code. We mostly we mostly look back on it now for its prohibitions of anything related to sexuality, nudity, language, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. But it had it had more sinister roots than that. You were not allowed to criticize the government. You were not allowed beyond a certain you know level, the clergy, institutional authority. Um, there were all these ways of routing you away from doing doing films that seem to be what are representing American society in a highly critical light came in for a lot of censorship all of a sudden. So like they completely, um, what they completely defanged the gangster film. So after 1934, you get all these weird, soft gangster films where there has to be a good character of equal weight with the gangster when the whole fascination is the gangster, how he rises up out of almost always slum life because there are no other opportunities and how then he, his rise and fall was almost always what you were watching. And it had huge resonance, obviously, in the Depression, people getting driven into crime. Um, but people supposedly the danger was so many people were identifying with James Cagney or Edward G. Robinson as the gangster that it was regarded as highly dangerous. So that was one of the big reasons behind um, enforcing the code at last. But it really changes the nature of Hollywood films. So, you know, for example, they they have retrospective um, screenings of pre-code films because they're so amazingly racy and frank and adult and sensationalistic that that young people especially are always shocked (laughs) you know how frank about drug addiction and sexuality and crime and vice and all of these things that then get cut out of um films after 34 Mm -hmm. but then it it makes me think so uh, the um uh you know like big sleep which was uh, first written, I think, late 30s mm-hmm. and then made into a movie even later. Yes. Like, would you say then the, the genre itself started more in the literature or it's like coincided, you know, with Well, literature is another big influence. There's, there's mm-hmm. like I said, certain genres seem to be an influence, a strong influence, but there's also, and film movements, but there's also this literary hard-boiled Pulp Fiction form. The leading figures are Dashiell Hammett, Raymond, Raymond mm-hmm. Chandler, James M. Cain, Cornell Woolrich. Um, those are the four most famous whose novels of, especially the 30s and 40s, um, are finally adapted. It usually takes years, again, because of censorship. Um, the postman always rings twice and double indemnity were just considered that that was just considered way too hot um, to ever postman especially was notorious it was centered on a, a sadomasochistic relationship and uh, you know a kind of um, plot between a wife and a boyfriend to murder a husband that was based on a notorious trial of the 1920s and it took them years and years to be able to make that film because even the title was too too racy um and especially there's many people argue that originally film noir was starting up in the early 40s like with 
what, Maltese Falcon in 41, Stranger on mm-hmm. the Third Floor in 1940. But because of wartime unity, there was a drive to have so-called wartime unity, and they didn't want any depressing, demoralizing, dark, critical films to be made. So they squelched this kind of rising movement, supposedly. So it wasn't till after the end of World War II, 19, roughly 44, 45, as you're getting into that, that films start coming out. Um, big gushers of, um, of uh, film noir, what, what later comes to be called film noir. In fact, the French name um, these films, there wasn't a name. They were called crime melodramas, thrillers, tough films. They had various names in America. But when the embargo, when the Nazis are defeated, the French are able to see American films again, they see this backlog of a bunch of films from 1944, right at the end of the war, 44 or 45. And they're like, wow, (laughs) Um, these films are incredible. The Americans are making great films and we're calling them film noir. They named them after the so-called noir black series of books by people like Dashiell Hammett, Raymond Chandler, and the other hard-boiled pulp writers. So there's a direct link. No one doubts that. And you know, many of the of the most um, what influential film noir were were adaptations of those hard-boiled um, pulp um, fiction writers on their and their most famous novels. So that's a clear um, lineage. Yeah, but that comes. It's interesting because that comes out of the 30s um, as much as it does the 40s. But the movies don't get made until until really a, a lot of them in the mid forties, forties and fifties is the era of, of film noir. Mm-hmm. And, and, the, and you say that basically the, the code is what stopped them being made like earlier, right? Well, you could argue. Yeah. I mean, everyone wanted, would have loved to have ad- adapted say postman always rings twice. Cause it was just a huge bestseller, but it just, there was no way once, once the code, the hammer had come down, it, it literally took them until when, when did they finally make it in Hollywood? I think it's 1945. Mm-hmm. They finally make a very... 46, yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe with 46. It's a very tame version of Postman Always Rings Twice. It takes all that time. <laughs> um, Double Indemnity gets made, and it's a much better version, the Billy famous Billy Wilder version. It's considered the ultimate. Um, if you want to show someone what is film noir, you say, watch Double Indemnity. You'll get almost every quality associated with the form. That's, that's 44. And I forget when, when that novel came out, but it was definitely earlier. And so it takes years to get that one made as well. Yeah. I see. So, and and then uh, the kind of the new noir, which I don't know, would it be considered like seventies? That's what, emer- what yeah, that it's name kind of like and, the yeah. form is considered the, the 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 essential years are like roughly mm-hmm. forty five to fifty nine somewhere in okay. there, and then there's this kind of it kind of dies out as a form, and then it starts creeping back in. You could argue late very late 60s with something like Point Blank and mm-hmm. then early 70s when you're getting Chinatown and Long Goodbye and, you know, others. And then it starts growing and you know, certainly get you, you get this kind of cachet associated with noir through the 80s and 90s. And it's kind of never gone away. It keeps being people keep dipping into it. So anytime mm-hmm. from, I don't know, late 60s to now is considered <laughs> sort of lumped under neo-noir. Yeah, but then uh, what I I wonder because I guess my one of my favorite films generally, not just noir, is Chinatown, and mm-hmm. uh, you know since I guess it's considered definitely neo noir, is yes. part part of being neo noir is this awareness of the genre because it's like the neo noir um, neo noir films cannot fully like be like take themselves seriously. It has to be they have to be a bit like aware and a bit playful, and it just never. So it's always there's like slightly like another another layer to the uh, 
I mean, it's certainly more, yeah for people who who especially are very hot on like film noir proper is a time bound form. Mm-hmm. It, it can't continue after the fifties because it's so much about the forties and fifties, which is why yeah. Edward Norton wanted to do Motherless Brooklyn. The book is set in the nineties. He sets it back in the fifties because he wanted he felt that the fast talking patter of the characters and everything else really yeah. belonged to noir. And for people who hate neo noir, they always argue that there's something artificial about it. It's harkening back to an earlier time in this strange way that you can't go back. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, for others, it's just like, yeah, you could you could say that might be a sort of definitive quality, a kind of, there's there's some sort of ironic distance in relation yeah. to the earlier form. Which which Chinatown really nails. Yes. I, again, recently watched it, it's like the tone is, it's kind of perfect. It, it Serious, is. but not. And then you always wonder... <laughs> Uh, right. Yeah. Well, and Polanski, uh, of course, is a can be at least he's associated with being a kind of master of that. These the most dreadful, <laughs> uh, faded, doomed, awful things are happening, and there's this kind of quality of mordant humor um, <laughs> yeah. attendant. So he's like the perfect. He's crap. Why he's so uniquely suited to do a perfect neo noir, which I think most people would point to Chinatown as the triumph of the neo-noir. Most of them are terrible in my, in yeah. my experience. They, they get it all wrong. They try so hard to be noir that they defeat <laughs> they defeat the purpose. Um, I think Motherless Brooklyn is a good example of that. It's yeah. trying so hard. You're just like, oh, it's exhausting. 